solo and group clinicians alike are buzzing about Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals. With live customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and an extensive feature library, Therapy Notes is sure to streamline your workflow, giving you time to care more and worry less. Try them for two months free using promo code MODERN today. Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and as always, thank you for being a listener. And if you do us a favor, wherever you are listening to us, please stop by and leave a reading and a review. It definitely helps us out. And today's episode, we are going to start with a piece of news that has happened here in the last couple of months within the therapy world and kind of expand to broader systematic issues and also hit some highlights along the way for us as clinicians. But this is really started out by the news of University of Penn CAPS director Gregory Eels, who died by suicide in September, is a really frustrating and sad piece of news that has has a lot of different levels of nuance to this and a lot of different avenues of looking at the structure of how therapy in general, specifically therapy in university counseling centers, is really being looked at and being evaluated. And some of the discussions that I've seen in various social media platforms around this particular death, but also highlighting just what exactly it is to be working in a university counseling center, how it's changed in in really the last 20 years. And historically, over the course of my career, this was traditionally seen as a really good job to get into, a really cushy position of working you know, six to eight sessions with worried well college students. And I think over the last several years, last decade plus, that that has really changed as the demand for university counseling center services have increased. I think as students are more aware of mental health issues and students with a lot riskier mental health presentations are actually becoming students where in the past they might not have. And the resources and the structure around university counseling centers has been trying to address this, but it's definitely a challenge in what today's reality of that particular aspect of our field is facing. And I think the other aspect of it is this is something where I've seen this news pop up here and there around other kind of high visibility clinicians or those types of things. And so I think there's the very specifics of this situation that was college counseling center related. And I think there's also a general sense that we have therapists and psychologists who are more at risk for suicide 
than the general population. There was a study in NIH has, and I'll put a link in the show notes from 2011, that looked at suicide rates for psychologists. And there was a suggestion, at least in the historical information, that it was higher. And, and you know, I think it's important that we continue to look at this, but it seems like there's a lot of us that are in this field because we have our own past, potentially our own mental health concerns. And when we are working in an environment that doesn't take care of us properly, and I don't know exactly how to say that more succinctly because we're going to go into it, but I think being able to recognize that we need to discuss this this thing. I don't know how to say it better. We, we need to discuss how clinicians are also at risk for dying by suicide. So a little bit about the background of Greg Eels. He had previously been the director at the University of Southern Mississippi's University Counseling Center and was the president of the Association for University and College Counseling Center Directors, also known as the AUCCCD. After leaving the University of Southern Mississippi, he went to Cornell, where for 15 years he was the executive director at Counseling and Psychological Services. And then in March is when he moved to the University of Pennsylvania. His death was in September. So in just a very, very short amount of time, he was brought in to work in a university that was facing a a real crunch in mental health services to their students. In the previous six years, 14 students at the University of Penn had died by suicide. And so he was really brought in to not only help the university counseling center to be able to better serve their students, but also to work with the university on identifying how to promote mental health access and also working with lobbyists and legislatures on being able to provide more opportunities for funding and services for students in crisis. And the aspects of different reports of the later months of his life was there's reports that he was having a very difficult time of balancing the incredible amount of demands that the University of Penn was putting on his position while also still having his family in New York. And so he wasn't having the family time that a lot of us encourage as part of a, a greater self-care aspect. And here's kind of where some of this frustration comes in is the AUCCCD had their annual conference here just a couple of weeks ago at the end of October. And unrelated to Dr. Eel's death, the theme of the conference really was focusing on director self-care. And the little bit that I'm seeing on Twitter about people posting about self-care on here, it's, it's almost frustrating in yeah. the way that this is being presented. Some of the Twitter highlights are about self-care means taking a nap, or here's a guide on how to make the best essential oils for self-care for directors. Oh, geez. And this is so frustrating that yeah. for the professional conference in the wake of a former executive director's suicide to not be able to take this to a level of really looking at the systematic change that allows for 
professionals to be working in really high stress environments with tremendously large caseloads that is like, hey, here, go make some essential oils. Go take a nap on your couch. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people have talked about this in a lot of different places, but it to me, it is something that I guess kind of checks a box. Let's let's say that we support self-care. Let's give people some tools to do self-care, although essential oils and naps seem so small compared to the types of self-care that I think are really required here. But it also puts the onus on the individual. It in some ways infers that someone that has not been able to do this, it's their fault. And it it's something where it doesn't recognize the aspects of how much of these things are either systemic or not appropriately addressed when they are individual factors. And I think to me, being able to identify the systemic things, especially in a conference, but but the systemic things and looking at ways that collectively we can address them, I think is important and more empowering than saying, go make some essential oils. And so to me, not only is it frustrating, I feel like it's insulting. I think it's offensive. And I also think it's extremely ineffective. When we talk about systemic stuff, which... Katie and I love to take on the system. and <laughs> Yeah, we do. Really being able to hold all aspects of our systems accountable. And I don't really think that we've ever talked specifically about university counseling centers before, if no. at all, on our podcast. But the Center for Collegiate Mental Health in 2015 reports said that enrollment overall at universities in the previous five years had increased by 5%. And the use of counseling centers in that same time grew by 30%. So what we're seeing is way out of balance for the number of students who are actually coming. More of them are coming for more services. And we've seen legislation in various parts of the country over the years. California, where Katie and I both live, is one area where we've seen some legislation that has looked very promising that ultimately so far has not been signed into law of putting one therapist for every 1500 students into counseling centers on campus, which at first glance, and I will very, you know, put myself out there and say that this is something that originally I very much supported. You know, this is jobs for therapists. This is good early access mental health for a lot of people who are transitioning into places where they're, they might not have the family or the social support where they've had it before. Yay jobs. <laughs> Therapy Notes not only combines billing, scheduling, and notes into one easy-to-use software, they now also offer group telehealth, up to 15 clients in a group session at a time, and secure messaging features. And with their 24-7 customer service, they're ready to assist you no matter where your practice takes you. Therapy Notes allows you to do it all. Whether you're a solo clinician or part of a group practice, you'll have all the tools for success at your fingertips with Therapy Notes. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. But... I I came across the AUCCCD annual survey from 2018, 
and they reported that one therapist for every 1,411 students across the survey of their members resulted in a caseload of 103 students per therapist. Oh, geez, that is super high. I mean, you do the math, and even at kind of ridiculous productivity standards, at 30 sessions a week, you're seeing your your clients once every three weeks. Mm-hmm. Or you're doing group therapy or some sort of other form of case management that's much shorter. And for some folks, it's, it's sufficient, but for many, it's not. And so you're doing clinical work that is ineffective or just you're burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. And so to me, that that doesn't seem sufficient. And it's interesting that that's the utilization rate. So we're looking at nearly 10% or 10% utilization rate, almost, well, I guess a little less than 10% utilization rate. That's pretty high, right? Right. Pulling from a, a post on Reddit from Reddit user U slash Psy Diligence, who works in a university counseling center as a psychologist and reports that they make $55,000 a year which is far below what reportedly in in this town could be made in private practice. But with a caseload of 120 students, and it grows by three to five every week, that most sessions are 15 minutes. And this is in a bureaucracy that everybody's demanding that everyone have access to the counseling center. And some other users in this comment chain are talking about their experiences of working in these counseling centers where in the intake, people are assigned a risk level of, you know, somewhere on a scale of one to three or one to five, depending on the university's own management systems. But that if you're somebody who's a one or a two, you're not considered high risk and you're not considered a priority to be seen. And so what we're potentially doing here is keeping people within a system without necessarily referring them out to other therapists out in the community because these are students who are seeking help but aren't deemed to be high risk enough to be seen regularly in the counseling centers but aren't being properly served as far as ongoing early intervention treatment that could help give them the skills early enough even if it's outside of the university system. Yeah, I think there's probably a couple of things to that because I know I've had universities refer to me when there's been a specific need or they didn't have the space in their counseling center. So I'm assuming it's very different counseling center to counseling center. But I've also talked to counseling center and, and kind of student services personnel. And there can be a push to keep services in house or to keep students in, in the college or whatever because students are the revenue stream. Mm-hmm. And so it can be this thing where there's these external forces that are admitting more students, potentially not prepared for college, that are potentially not able to do the work academically, but then that also shows up psychologically. And so there's these these greater needs for services. And I think that there's some early intervention that can happen, but it can also be something where there are services that are much different or more comprehensive than people have done in the past. And so I think there may be solutions and I hope that there are solutions because I think that 
for some college is a is a, a right step and, and people should be able to access that and have the support to to be successful. But I also think that there is a need, especially in kind of the professional universities or the for-profit universities, to really look at how they're, you know, letting people in. I mean, there's a whole other conversation that's not really a survival guide podcast conversation about who gets let into college and why, <laughs> you know, and, and the money and, and kind of how they're seen as, as little little profits. And so, but but when we're looking from the counselor perspective, if they're doing services for more students than they can really service. They're, they're doing services that are maybe less effective because here are students that high, have higher level of need. And certainly, I mean, I think about, this is kind of what happened in the public mental health system while I was there. The, the level of need to, to qualify for services became so high that caseloads were just all the most to need highest intensity cases. And that's a really hard caseload to navigate. And then if you're seeing them for 15 minutes or you, you can't see them weekly, this is something where I, you know, I've seen this in a couple of places and I'll post something in the show notes, but there's this idea of moral injury where you are forced to, in, you know, to stay in this environment. You're forced to do services that are suboptimal and the meaning that you find from work helping people actually diminishes because you've not been able to properly serve these clients. And so that can be a huge hit for folks who are already sacrificing themselves to put on a, a leaky Band-Aid that's not effective. And so then that can, I think that can really hit very hard for folks who have absolutely no resources left. The resilience is gone. Making meaning is difficult. And to me, it makes sense that in some of these systems, especially that folks who help others to avoid death by suicide, see that as an option for themselves because of the level of pain and the depression and the, the things that they're facing. So rather than just complaining about where the system's at, this is also an opportunity to talk about new ways to evaluate exactly what needs to happen. Very much a part of this is also the discussion around setting self-care boundaries between you and your job. And mm -hmm. I can see that Katie is just like raring to go and talking about that. <laughs> but but talking about this more from from a systemic effort is not necessarily looking at these blanket ratios of one therapist to 1,500 students, because I think that that's going to wildly vary from institution to institution. I think a small liberal arts school that only has 1,500 students, if you're going to put one therapist in that counseling center, that seems kind of not like the best ratio. Nope. So it might also be a campus that has, you know, just general, really good, mentally healthy, well students who aren't utilizing the, the counseling center. I think at larger universities, you might have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 students that is going to have a very different type of student who's showing up there in the first place. And so what I'm going to point to, and we're going to include a whole bunch of stuff in our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com, but the Center for Collegiate Mental Health in 2018 came up with the Clinical Load Index. And this is a really fascinating economic model of determining just exactly what kinds of input should go into just how counseling centers 
really staff themselves based on not only the number of students at a university, but also the utilization of the students who have been there. And so even in the fluctuations from one school to another, it's being able to see, okay, this university of 10,000 students has this many students seeking out this number of therapy sessions. And this comparable university with 10,000 students is 15% lower. That they shouldn't be forced to require the same number of therapists in both situations. And especially when you get the bean counters in some bureaucratic office in the provost office or wherever else figuring out just how much to staff, that this actually starts to look at the utilization rates. It's also being able to look at the clinical capacity and the number of hours of being able to offer services. And one of the things that I've come across in my readings about the University of Pennsylvania over the last several months was this desire to create mental health access 24 hours a day for students, Yeah, which is a tremendous undertaking and a phenomenally wonderful aspiration to be able to provide that. But if the program that you're in is not capable of offering 24-hour services, then that's going to really limit the capacity of what your center is going to do, what your structure of your offices is. If the counseling center that you have only has five offices, you can only offer five sessions at a time. So being able to look at some of those capacity questions really does help to make some of these decisions easier as far as how to staff that isn't a mandated one per 1,500 students. And I see a utility of this, not just in university counseling centers, but in nonprofits. I see this in community mental health is being able to really evaluate just what the need is. So we're not running into these efforts of needing to see 30 plus high risk clients a week. Yeah, I mean, and, and I really want to expand on both of those points, looking at need and capacity. The need aspect, I think there's, what, is the, what does the student body need? What does the individual students need? You know, those kinds of things, I think there's how mentally well they are, but there's also hugely different cultures from university to university. There's different things that students are facing depending on the universities. Whereas at Penn and Cornell, uh, Dr. Eels had been in a, you know, an interview where it was basically saying that the hugely competitive environment and that kind of high end situation. Ivy League schools. The Ivy League schools. And then there's other schools, and, and this was more like the school that I went to, where they were very focused on bringing students and populations into the college environment where they were the first generation in school. And there was, there was a lot of, and it was also a competitive school, but it was also, it was an Ivy league <laughs> and there was a different environment of how do we, how do we navigate this new, this new situation and how do we gain the skills? And so there's, you know, and everything in between and, and, and all different types of situations, there's different cultural, actual demographic cultural makeup, and there's different cultures of each school. And so I think being able to really do a needs assessment for your actual student body, I think is really important, not just how many therapists, but what types of services. And I think 
even getting creative about what types of services, because you have four offices, you could have four sessions at a time, but you could also have four groups at a time. You can also start thinking outside of the office. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do, but if you create a 24-7 coverage situation, for example, you need to actually determine, do I have enough therapists for that? And do I have the resources so that there's not one person? And usually the director, because I was in a director position where there was 24-hour coverage, I felt like I was always on. And I only did that for a short period of time, relatively, about a year. And I felt like I constantly was at work because even though I wasn't getting the direct calls, I was constantly doing the supervision. I was constantly in that space. And so being able to actually think about what is the service that you're able to provide? How does that actually address the needs of the students or your clients or whatever? And what is the true capacity? Because there's the capacity of, of number of people, number of offices, but there's also mental and emotional capacity. I mean, I think that's the thing that I really have come to recognize as I've moved out of public mental health and really started, you know, feeling into all the spaces of what I want to do for myself. I could have capacity to run probably 100 hours a week and do lots of stuff for a period of time and I would crash and burn. And so a lot of times productivity driven or or kind of tight budget driven programs maximize time without actually looking at the the effect on individuals and sustainability. And so I think those those both of those things are really important. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Part of this that does go back to at least the university structures here is I know that a lot of therapists are asked to keep data on client outcomes and maybe part of your job is being tracked on on your productivity and the number of, of sessions that you're seeing clients each week. But I think there's, as part of the therapy movement, that what universities really do offer and these counseling centers potentially offer that some of these other agencies might not is the ability to really be a part of the union that can mm. really set major aspects around the occupational hazards that go into speaking to all of the things that this episode's addressing. And so tracking some of that data for yourself of really being able to see the number of hours that you're quote unquote on in being able to provide services to the clients that you're supposed to be seeing in a traditional 40 hour work week or, you know, this whole 
bureaucracy and university systems of full-time equivalent positions that might be spread across three or four part-time positions yeah. that really you know, push this capacity of being able to see clients beyond what we're all trained to do, which is help people. Mm-hmm. But being able to track this data for yourself really then allows for the union to collectively voice what is realistic for these positions and what is realistic for the workers who are in them. And you know, for those who don't have a union that they're involved in, I mean, there's a lot of different types of schools and also there's a lot of different settings that I think this applies to. I think to me, and I don't have a, an instruction, I have more of a, a question in a, in a lack of direction on it. When we look at productivity or we look at services provided, you know, whether it's hours billed or number of sessions or whatever it is, I don't know how to fix that because there is truth to the funding streams and those kinds of things that require a certain level of output to keep the funding going. There's a certain truth to all those things. So to me, it's like there's, there's layers of systems that have to be addressed because if we don't say you need to see this many students and then don't set up a way to do it, you know, it's just, Hey, you've got to see a hundred students or 120 students in a month. Good luck. <laughs> you know, that is horrific. If it's, Hey, you're going to have, you know, 80 students in four you know, workshops that are 20 students each. And then you're going to have another 40 that are either every other week or once a month. And that actually is the right level of service. That's two very different pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's something where it's like, okay, what, it, what are the metrics that people are being measured on? How does it actually impact services? And regardless, what is the, the freedom of movement we have if we're trying to make sure that people are getting paid? I think, I don't know how university funding streams are for the, the, the counseling centers. I'm assuming they have a budget and so they just have to do what they can. And so it would be increasing that line item. And so the university would have to make that decision and determine that that was why it needed to happen. But it, it, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm wanting to add that point because I think that there is a reality that we have a system that even at a systemic level within your university or your organization may not be able to be a hundred percent fixed. And you have to decide if you can healthfully stay in it, if there's ways to improve it, if you have the agency to improve it, because I think there are folks who are in these environments that are burning out, potentially are becoming extremely depressed. Obviously there's people who are becoming suicidal at all levels of, of, the organizations or the the schools. And so I don't want to, I don't, I don't think you were being flippant, but I don't want us to be flippant and say, let's go make essential oils either. Like, oh, we'll just, you know, set some boundaries at work. I think it's, it's recognizing that there's a real systemic issue here. And so working within that systemic, that system, I think determining what, what's okay and not okay for you and when you have to step away from it. So, I, I mean, I don't want to be super, I don't know what the right word is, down, <laughs> negative. I want us to find solutions, but I think that there are things that are not simple. And as we have seen with a lot of the different negotiations and things that have been happening with Kaiser in California, 
even with a union, they feel pretty hard to solve. So I think I think we have to recognize that there are some things that are going to be longer shifts and we have to take good care of ourselves in the meantime. And I don't know if that feels depressing or defeatist, but I think that there are some bigger shifts that are going to take time. What's coming up for me as I'm hearing you talk is recognizing that when you're working in some of these systems, Katie and I are are out in the wonderful pastures of private practice, of <laughs> being able to determine what our caseloads are, what our capacity is. But working in these systems, I think one of the really underspoken about signs of burnout is when you as the individual feel that there's no incentive to do more. That when you're showing up, you know, this is, we talk about these big signs of burnout of, of, you know, depression and, you know, just being constantly always on. But I think that there's a scale in there of, I have no incentive to actually do more. I have 95 people on my caseload. Five more just got added. I'm not wanting to take on any more. Yeah. True hopelessness is really when our when our agencies and our, our centers are staffed by people who really entered into this field to change people's lives, to change the world, to have ambition. That so many people who talk to us about listening to this podcast, about coming to our conferences, and just say, you know, this is energizing to be talking about getting into that ambitious space again is some of that personal stuff that needs to be advocated for in these centers that really does make this field sustainable. Because when we have people who are burning out that, you know, they're not already serving all of their clients very well with these giant caseloads, but then Mm -hmm. you add on top of that, the high turnover rates that happen inside of these positions as well. And you end up with burnt out people taking on some of the riskiest students in in these very archaic bureaucratic systems. And and so some of these changes really do have to start with some of us really being able to cohesively speak up and advocate and be able to push for what that funding is. And if you don't have the ambition to do that, please check out what that ambition is because if this is what helps keep other people in these positions that are saving lives, this is leaving our profession a better place. And we all have our own individual capacities. We all have our own systemic capacities, but this is really the call to action of let's do something about this and let's continue to push this forward. And so the next time that you see legislation out about is, are these jobs actually sustainable if this is getting written into law of one in 1500 is that actually good enough and we're starting to see research that probably not yeah and i think the other piece to this because i i've heard of therapists in private practice dying by suicide and and a lot of clinicians either getting out barely when they're just extremely burned out or washing out or doing whatever that is but i think and, and this is, I'm a broken record on this, but I think if we're able to connect as a community and identify these things in our colleagues, because when we're in our darkest places, when we're the most burnt out, when we're the most overwhelmed, 
we may know we're therapists. We kind of probably know, but we may not know the extent. And I'm, I'm just thinking back to my most burnt out, you know, and I've hit it a lot, but the most burnt out when I was in community mental health and having a colleague who had left the organization kind of mirror back to me what was what she saw. Even in that moment, I didn't see it. I had a therapist who was helping me. I had actually the same therapist I still have. And, you know, and I had colleagues telling me, but until I got out of that system, I did not realize how detrimental it was to me. And I didn't realize that there was something different. I was the fish in water that didn't realize, didn't know what water was. I had a sense, but I didn't know. And so I think there's so much more we could say. And we've, we've talked about burnout in, in several episodes. We'll put those in the show notes. But I think that there's this need as colleagues, as supervisors, as managers, because I think all of us are, okay, I'm not going to be over journalists. I think many of us are coming from a very good place and still want to help people. I think if we can help each other to identify these things and try to to call them out and not that we're going to see them because you know there's all kinds of things where we talk you know people seem resolved and happy and positive and and then you know they die by suicide the next day so i know that this is a this is this is oversimplified but i think if we can come together and support each other in identifying these things and in standing up and saying i'm not going to work overtime or i really can't take another case or whatever it is or or this job isn't right for me and I'm going to find a new one. I think that that whatever we can do to support each other, the stronger we become as a community. We'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences on all of this. So please reach out to us on our social media or join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, and continue adding into the conversation. But also, if you're working in one of these centers, start to raise your concerns, start to push for actual change. And, you know, we talked about this at our Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference, but the therapy movement is not just within what we're doing, but it is also with what you are capable of doing for your life and your job where you're at. So until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, use promo code MODERN for two free months. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.